The text for our sermon this evening is from the Suffering Servant Song, uh, the so- song number four uh, from Isaiah 52 and 53, and specifically the first couple of verses. Behold, my servant shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of the children of mankind. God's grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The servant of God becomes unknown. He becomes marred beyond human semblance by our sins so that we would be given new life, that we would be given forgiveness of sins, and God will never forget us. There is in our world the unfortunate tragedy that when someone dies but no one recognizes them, that when no one knows a victim, there's a search for any closest of kin. There's a search for anybody who might know who this person was that was murdered or killed or died in some, some crime. We have in us a desire to identify victims. Even this week as we mourn the deaths of Evelyn Dekos, Haley Scruggs, William Kenny, Cynthia Peake, Mike Hill, and Catherine Kuntz, the six Christians murdered at the Covenant Christian School, we want to know who they were. There's a part of us, I think, collectively as a nation that wants to recognize these people. We want to recognize them as people. The enemies of Christianity who mock us, even at a time like this, they say, well, their prayers must not have been good enough. God must have forgotten them. God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We also have soldiers who die in war who have no identification or their bodies are so marred and broken because of war and bloodshed and evil of man, we can't even identify them. It's a national tragedy. We as a society know how important it is to see our fellow humans as one of our own. We want to recognize the gift and fragility of life that when someone who has died cannot be identified, we don't rest until we know. In fact, even our nation, we have the tomb of the unknown soldier. At the tomb of the unknown soldier, a known soldier stands guard. The tomb is guarded with the utmost decorum. The land is sacred. The changing of the guard is a liturgy that will not let the memory of this one be lost. We may not know who the soldier is, but we dare not treat this person with any disrespect or dishonor, even though we don't know who they are. Even though we don't know their face, we don't know their family, we don't know their dreams that they had. No one can give a witness to their existence. 
not even enough of their bodies left to identify. But with God as our witness, we will not forget. The suffering servant of God becomes the unknown soldier who fights for our salvation so that God would never forget us. The fourth and final servant song that we hear of tonight begins to more clearly flesh out who this servant Messiah will be. What will his life be like? What will his death be like? But in teaching us who this servant is going to be, God's very servant, we might think this servant would be celebrated. But tonight we are taught by the Holy Spirit through the prophet Isaiah that this servant will be abused. He will be so degraded, he will not even be viewed as a human. As we consider this last servant song, we might think the servant of God would be handsome, would have beauty that that far outweighs anything we see in creation. One who would be head and soldiers above all other people in regards even maybe to his looks. I mean, that's how the world works, right? Royalty, the prestigious, the rich, they're all beautiful people. God said he's going to prepare his people for the arrival of his servant. Well, what will this servant look like? Isaiah 52 and 53 begin to paint a physical picture of the servant. First, as, as, Isaiah, as our reading, as the servant's song begins in Isaiah 52, we are told, he will be wise. Behold, my servant, he will be wise. Well, to a Jew, this makes sense, because who else was wise? Who was the most wise of all in all the scriptures? It was King Solomon, of course. Solomon, who by his wisdom that God gave him, even pagan kings from foreign nations would come just to hear Solomon speak. They wanted to draw on his wisdom. They admired him from sea to shining sea. In addition, in the Song of Songs, we're told that Solomon, in addition to being wise, was handsome. He was a real looker. One who women admired and men longed to be like. He was, as they say nowadays, beautiful on the outside and the inside. Surely the servant of God the one to lead God's people for all generations, surely the one who's going to be king above kings, this servant, surely he'll be greater than Solomon. Surely he'll have more respect than ever was paid to Solomon. If foreigners would travel to see Solomon the wise, the servant of God should certainly be able to draw a crowd. But as we move forward into the New Testament and we consider Jesus as the servant, what what sort of ways did people mistake Isaiah's servant song? What wisdom were the people looking for? One who acts wisely, one who could draw crowds. But as Jesus travels around, as he preaches, as he goes to the synagogues, 
what did the crowds, how did the crowds react to him? When the wise teachers of Israel, the scribes, the Pharisees, the experts in the law, when they would come to hear Jesus, what was their reaction? Well, Mark 6 says, On the Sabbath day, Jesus began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter's son? The son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. When Jesus spoke with wisdom, God's people said he's an idiot. They loved the wisdom of the world more than God's wise servant. Jesus spoke with the same wisdom of Solomon, that of salvation and eternal life and mercy found only by faith and trust in God's servant, Jesus. Solomon preached of this. Jesus preached of this. Yet the people of God coveted the wisdom of the world. And so this should be a lesson to us, remembering Isaiah and this teaching about the wise servant and what the Jews then in Jesus' day thought was really wisdom was the foolishness of the world. We too should not fall into the same trap. We should not be so quick to admire the wisdom of the world with longing eyes. We should be more ready to open our ears to the wisdom of God rather than the wisdom that the world loves, a wisdom of a world that is so confused, a wisdom of the world that says you can't know who you are. You are a nobody. Especially this wisdom of the world comes creeping in when it comes to the role of men and women and how we act toward one another and in the church. How we should look to the scriptures for wisdom for this instead of repeating the mantras of the world. We should remember the importance of marriage. The wisdom of being in church and Bible study. There are so many other pulpits and holy books of wisdom out there clamoring to get your attention. Phone screens, TV screens, YouTube, TED Talk, podcasts. All of these are looking to give you wisdom, and they should be used rightly. But how much frivolous time do we waste on such things? Screens have become so good-looking to us. Screens are so handsome. They're so wise to teach us. So much so that instead of speaking and teaching God's word to one another, even as a congregation, we give each other screens to look at. We think that maybe we ourselves don't have wisdom to offer one another, that we are ugly, that we have nothing to offer one another in personal relationships. But do not forget that God has given you wisdom by His Holy Spirit. God has given the people here in your church wisdom to share with one another. God's Word is a foundation of wisdom. But my, how we looked to the parched desert lands of a fallen world. 
When they looked at Jesus, they said, he's from Nazareth. Nothing good can come from there. Don't we do the same with, each, with one another in some ways? Isaiah continues. First, he speaks of wisdom. We need to not be tricked into longing for the wisdom of the world. Next, this servant is described as high and lifted up. This phrase, high and lifted up, in the book of Isaiah, these descriptors were solely used for God in the entire book. It's not used for anybody else. Multiple times, Isaiah describes God and his kingdom as high, lifted up. That sounds great, doesn't it? A servant who might be handsome, a servant who's going to be wise, a servant who's going to be high and lifted up. But then the Holy Spirit teaches the corrective as we continue in the servant song. It says, yes, he's going to be wise, high and lifted up, but then, then the unbelievable comes. His appearance is so marred beyond human semblance. His form destroyed beyond that of children of mankind. The one who created humanity, even after his own image, the one who looked at man and woman in the Garden of Eden after he created them, and he said, it is very good. The one who gives us eyes and bodies to use for beauty. He's given us our bodies to use to his glory, and we have degraded them. We have tortured one another. Not just each other, but even ourselves. Because we rebel against the true beauty that he says we have. The servant as wise and handsome, high and lifted up, what does all that mean? Well, it means he'll be marred beyond human semblance. He would be beaten and rejected to the point that he could not be identified. This is how the created receives her creator, Jesus, the unknown soldier, the suffering servant. And those who scorned Jesus, they wanted to forget him. They wanted his name and his face to be erased from history, but he would not. He would not give up because he wanted to do this for you. This is so often how the hungry and thirsty quench their thirst for evil and hunger for pride. How did, how did we receive God's servant? We killed him. Peter preaches in Acts 3. He references this servant song. Peter in Acts 3, he says, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied. Peter sees Jesus as a fulfillment of Isaiah 52 and 53. John in chapter 12, even Jesus mentions this Isaiah 52 passage. When Jesus said, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Here Jesus fulfills Isaiah 52, 13. My servant will be high and lifted up. 
Jesus knew exactly what was coming. The servant, he becomes subhuman by taking all of our sins upon himself so that you and I would be forgiven and truly made human again. The wisdom of God is that you would know that God does not hold your sins against you. As much as we've bloodied one another, as ugly and subhuman our sins are, the man above all men, Jesus, he took those sins away so that you would never be forgotten by God, that you would be given an identity that spans not just now, but into eternity, that you, by your name, this is why we, when we baptize people, we say, what is your name? That name is to be known for all eternity, known by God. Though we have relished in perverted wisdom, though we have drunk from the wells of the wisdom of the world, God says, I forgive you. I wash you. I give you my name. Do not fear. In becoming the unknown servant... Jesus makes us known to God, and he will never forget you. And in the resurrection, we will once again be fully human without sin. May the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.